Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for your goodness, for your word, and uh, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. We just pray, Lord, that you would just speak to us through the simple reading of your word, that you would guide us and lead us and uh, just encourage us as only you can do, please. So have your way with us now as we sit at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 2. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the Bible. This week we find ourselves in Colossians chapter 2. Lord willing, reading verses 1 through 10. We've been talking about that we're going slow through Colossians. So is that okay? Go slow through Colossians? All right, thank you. That was close. We've um, talked in the first chapter, first few weeks, we've been talking about that a lot of really Colossians, one of the sort of the main themes of Colossians is the focus on Jesus, right? And we talked about the analogy of like the scope, and I told you the whole story, and if you haven't been here, I'll make you, if you have been here, I'll make you suffer through it again for those that haven't. Uh, you know, we got a scope upstairs in our, uh, over, looking out over the creek, and you can see a hawk's nest when, the, when it's early spring and the leaves are down. Hawk's nest, and you can kind of stare at that hawk and watch every movement of its head and whether it moves its head to the right or the left, which is significant, and if it's looking at us and all that. And you focus on that hawk, right? And as you focus, the more you draw your focus on that hawk, everything else sort of pales in comparison. Everything else gets fuzzy, right? And so the book of Colossians is much like that. As we focus on Jesus, who the book of Hebrews describes as the author and finisher of our faith, as we focus on Jesus, everything else just gets a little more fuzzy. And sometimes in life, we get a little out of focus on Jesus and everything else gets more clear, right? And so a lot of it is just maybe a simple analogy like that. And so we've been talking about the focus being on Jesus, which is really sort of the highlight of chapter one. And chapter two moves into now a little bit of, well, so what do we do in light of that? How do we live in light of that? And so um, that's how we kind of pick up. If, but I want to pick up first uh, at the first, the last couple of verses of chapter one. Look at verse 28, if you would. It says, him we preach, him being Jesus. So we've been talking about Jesus all through chapter 1, and then he concludes chapter 1 with, him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to the working which works in me mightily. And we talked about this as we wrapped up a little bit last week, just to kind of review. That idea that we... Um, Verse 29, I labor, striving according to his working, but it's the working which works in me. Like, it's not me doing the work, it's him working in me. So we have this little balance going on, really this sort of uh, eternal balance, that we're working, we're striving even, Right, And yet we recognize that it's God working in us. And again, uh, I mentioned last week, you can turn there if you want, Philippians chapter 2. This is really, in my mind, the go-to verse of this idea throughout Scripture. And that is chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have also always obeyed, not as in my 
presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out like it's dependent upon you, but realizing for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Super annoying when, um, you know, I realize that uh, uh, usually a pastor gets up at the beginning of, of a teaching and says, would everybody silence their cell phones? And then I just silenced mine. So anyway, that's that. It's God that works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God does the work. God not only just does the work, God gives you the desire to do the work. It is God who works in you to will, to desire in the first place, and to do for his good pleasure. So as a result of that, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, right? Do the work as if it's dependent on you, but realize that it's God that's doing the work. How does that work? We really don't know. That's a supernatural mystery that God gives us, right? But it's a reality. And so um, that's what we are to do. And so how does this play out in the life of the Colossians? Verse chapter two, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Now, we mentioned this in the introduction of this book. Paul never went to Colossae. Um, most people believe that during Paul's time in Ephesus, there was a guy from Colossae, uh, Epaphroditus, who was there and basically took the message back and started this church in Colossae. Same thing probably in Laodicea. There was probably a, another church in Laodicea that, we, that had a letter, but we don't have it in our Bible. Uh, but anyway, um, so what Paul is saying here is, I've got a great conflict personally for you and for them, even though I've never seen you guys. And the word conflict is interesting. It's the same root word that we see, and the reason I allude back up to chapter 1, verse 29, to this end I also labor striving. That word striving is the same root word as the word conflict in chapter 2, verse 1. And it's the root word, the Greek, the Greek word, that we get our word agonizing from. So let's read it like this. I want you to know what great agonizing I have for you and those in Laodicea, even though I've never seen you. Paul is agonizing for them. It's that level of empathy that he has. He's expressing this deep emotion. And notice it's for others that he's never met. He's never met them. He just wants their well-being. He desires their well-being. Here's the question. Am I able to take the focus off of myself and my situation and my needs long enough to agonize over what it is that concerns you? How good are we, are, how good are we as, a, as human beings, as a church, as individuals at that? Like if we give ourselves a grade. Maybe on a good day, we'd give ourselves a B minus, right? Am I so good at laying aside my concerns that I, can, that I can have empathy for what it is that you're going through so much so that I would describe it as agonizing? Am I agonizing for you, right? How good are we at that? Honestly, not, probably not great. Is that something we can improve upon? Yes, it is. There you go. We've got something we can improve upon. How much more so somebody we've never even met? 
right? People we've never met. When we hear missionary, our missionary friends come and share with us about the people that they are uh, engaging with week in and week out. We've never met those people, but we need to have empathy for those people. We need to have a burden for those people, even though we've never met them. That's the heart of Paul, and it's the heart of God. And so he's just sharing that with us, and it's an example for us that we need to be others-focused. Verse 2. Verse 2 is long. Let me just read verse 2, and then I want to go back, and I want to sort of talk about it one little phrase at a time, because this is one of those verses that Paul goes off. So he says, I have great conflict for you and for the Laodiceans, even though I've never seen them, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches, to the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. That's a mouthful, right? That's a mouthful. So let's look at this. That their hearts may be encouraged. This is the agony that he has for, for these people. What's, what does he long for for these people? That your stock prices would go up. Is that what he says? No. That your real estate would go up. That you'd be able to afford real estate in their day and age. Does he pray for any of that? Does he agonize for that? Does he even mention any of that? Of course not. He mentions that their hearts may be encouraged. Do we want that for one another? Do I lay aside, again, my agenda long enough to be concerned that your hearts are encouraged? I should. I should. We want that for one another. You know, some of our greatest joys can be when somebody we love is encouraged, right? On the other hand, we, we ache somewhat when people that we love ache. That's how it works, right? So he says, that their hearts may be encouraged. Being knit together in love. Being knit together in love. Now, being knit together in love is a part of being encouraged. So he wants them to be encouraged by being knit together in love. So what do we do as a, as a body of Christ? We're knit together, right? He's, his longing, Paul's longing for the Colossians, for the Laodiceans, really for us, God's longing for us, is that we'd be knit together. Can I tell you how important it is to be knit together as a body? Anybody knitting right now? So I won't nail anybody for knitting. If we're knitting, right, I would ask you to, to hold up your, your work so we could all, like, give it a grade. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but knitting together is when, like, a string of yarn becomes something that's workable, right? Something that's usable. Something that has individual value but also collective value, right? And it's knit together. Proverbs chapter 18 says, The man who isolates himself rages... I don't want to butcher it. Proverbs 18.1, the man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. We are not meant as Christians to function individually. 
Can I tell you this? This concerns me, not just for this church, and I'm not, please, 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 I'm not harping on church attendance or any of that stuff. Can you please, can, will you give me that? Can you roll with me on this? Everybody that showed up for church today? Right, you can roll with me. Right, but I'm not harping on this. I'm burdened, I believe, in the same way Paul is. Maybe not, I mean, I'm not as sanctified as Paul is, but I believe in the same way. I am burdened for the body of Christ, not just here, but really everywhere, who thinks they can function in a healthy manner, but not be knit together in love. Does that make sense? Is that a reality today? Yeah. Here's the paradox. Social media connects us, right? That's how it's spun. Does it connect us? Not really. It could, and I'm not trashing on it in and of itself, right? But it could also disconnect us if we're not careful. Right? Last year, praise the Lord, we, were, we had Facebook and it was, a, it was a tool for us. Right? Praise the Lord now. It's a, it's a tool for us. But it's also a means, if we're not careful, by which we can disconnect. And I say that not to, again, I've asked, my heart is that we'd be encouraged. Right? So I want this to be encouraging. But the reality is, one of the key ways that we're encouraged is to be knit together in love. I got to tell you this. I am encouraged when I leave this building every week. I am encouraged by what God is doing in the lives of ordinary people in this room. I'm encouraged by people that their hearts are knit together, that they are knit together in love. And if I miss that, I miss that, right? If I miss that, I miss that. And sometimes there's this, this thing we keep talking about in our family. You don't know what you don't know. Sometimes we miss out on something, and we don't even realize what it is we're missing out on. And I think, personally, I think that's God's mercy. But let me just encourage us. Paul's burden for these people is that their hearts would be encouraged and that they would be knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the, mystery, to the knowledge of the mystery of God. That's a mouthful. But attaining to all riches. The reality is there's tremendous value in knowing Jesus. All riches. We read this on uh, Wednesday night. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 15 says that regarding the wisdom of God and walking in godly wisdom, it, is, it says that all, things, all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Think of something you want right now. Right? Man, if I had that thing. I used to, anyway, I don't, even, I don't even let my brain go there anymore. Is quite some, well, not quite so much. Right? But there's this thing like, if I had that, man, life would be awesome. You've heard me tell the story before. You know, Tracy and I, before I got my cool tractor, Tracy and I would drive down the road, 
there'd be somebody had a tractor in his front yard, and we'd have this dialogue, right? She'd say, that man has a perfect life. And I would say, that man's wife is very supportive of his, of his needs, right? And we have a dialogue that goes something like that, right? And we'd say, God bless that man, the guy with the tractor, just like the one I want, right? So anyway, now I'm that guy, right? But anyway, um, we have this thing in our mind, like, that would be awesome. Proverbs chapter 2 says, Godly wisdom is greater than all the things you may desire. All of them, not just one of them, all of them. All the things you may desire cannot be compared with that. That's pretty crazy riches. He says, attaining to all riches and the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God. Does that mean we've got everything figured out? No. No, but we don't need to because God is God. And then he goes on, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so the Father and Christ, basically he's affirming now the deity of Jesus, right? Putting them together, right? And that's the whole, the whole point of chapter 1 and really of this book is the preeminence of Jesus. Jesus is God. And both both the Father and the Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do we need wisdom and knowledge in our world today? Do we need the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in our world today? Yes, we do. Where do we get those? We get them in both the Father and of Christ. Very important. So, God is the ultimate source of all wisdom and knowledge, and here's the deal. The Scripture is either true or it's false. It's either true or it's false. That's a whole other dialogue as to whether or not it's true, right? I believe it's true. If it's true, then both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's the storehouse of wisdom and knowledge. He goes on, he says, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. So he takes a little bit of a turn here. So after we read chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we say, wow, that's awesome. Paul wants us to be knit together. Paul wants us to be encouraged. Paul wants to be knit together in love. Paul wants us to understand the riches of the full assurance of knowing and and living according to the Word of God, because that's the storehouse, the treasury of all wisdom and knowledge, and that's a great place. And as we read that, and even as we kind of maybe absorb that, it almost feels like, man, if I live there, nothing can shake me, right? If I really lived in verses 1 through 3, Nothing could shake me. Nothing could shake my, my walk with the Lord. Nothing could shake my emotional stability. Nothing could shake my assurance. Nothing could shake my awareness of the riches I'm experiencing. Nothing could shake me. But there's a reason that Paul then goes on, and that is the reality is we're all still vulnerable. 
So he's speaking to some of our vulnerabilities. Now this I say, he says, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Can I say that words can be persuasive and they can deceive us. And if we're not careful, we are all vulnerable. And the end result is we're deceived and we're no longer walking in truth. John said, I have no greater joy than to know my children walk in truth. So we need to be aware of what these persuasive words are so we can say no to them, right? If I'm walking according to biblical wisdom, if that's the, if that's the essence of my life, and I need to be uh, beware lest anyone deceive me with persuasive words to get me off of that right path, I want to know what those persuasive words are so I'll be sure not to do that. Is that fair? So here's what the persuasive words are, right? You got to ask yourself, what would those persuasive words look like? Do they work? And you've heard me say this before. Do those persuasive words always say, hey, I tell you what, like Satan kind of, you know, the old, you know, the old cartoons, like where the angel's in one ear and uh, Satan's in the other ear. You guys know that old cartoon. Yeah, right. Thanks. Uh, you know, like Satan's in, the, uh, in this one saying, hey, tell you what we ought to do today. We ought to go rob a bank and, and snort crack cocaine until we're oblivious to the rest of the world. Is that how Satan usually does it? Anybody? Anybody? Maybe you experienced that this morning. <laughs> if so, anyway, yeah. Uh, but anyway, no. These words are deceitful. He says, I say this lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. So these are words that kind of, maybe when I see the word deceive, I'm thinking of words that might sound good but aren't. Is that fair? So can you work with me for a minute on this? Right. So... I'm going to suggest, based on our reading of Colossians thus far, that persuasive words might be anything that takes our focus off of Jesus. Is that fair? Even if it seems spiritual. Even if it seems right. And let me just say this. I've seen this. I've seen people... Okay, again, we're focused on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, right? Right? We're focused in on him. I've seen where, let's say, a doctrine. Oh, I love that doctrine. It just resonates with me. I read a good book one time about that doctrine. And I read three good books about that doctrine. And it, it really, I mean, it's Christian. It's biblical. And next thing you know... You're defined by that doctrine. Does that make sense? Is that possible? Does that happen? You bet it does. That's, where, that's why I don't use doctrinal labels. I don't even want to give you the attention of it. Right? Doctrine can do it. But that was a good thing, right? Sort of. Until it becomes the focus. How about a church? Can a church be a problem? Yeah. If somebody says, honestly, if one of you guys runs into somebody at Walmart, 
the epicenter of culture. If, if you run into somebody at Walmart and they say, tell me about your Christian life. And you say something like this. Oh, we've got an awesome church. You know, those people are great. Teaching's awesome. Worship's awesome. Music's awesome. Everything's awesome about that church. Then I'd say, you're in trouble. Right? You know, it's about this church. I'd say, you're in trouble. Somebody says, tell me about your Christian experience. You should be talking about who? Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And then, secondarily, that person might say, wow, well, where do you go to fellowship and be knit together as a part of the body of Christ? Oh, well, I go to have this church, right? So I believe a doctrine can, can be a means by which we drift from the path. I believe a church can be a means by which we drift from a path. A person can be a means by which we drift from a path. Can I talk straight for a minute? Okay. A political agenda can be a means by which we, dr we drift from the path. Now, in my daily travails, I encounter a few rightward-leaning, politically persuaded, persuaded people. Is that fair? Anybody, have I lost anybody yet? And it just so happens that a lot of Christians, I've noticed, are rightward-leaning people in this day and age. Is that, does it get hot in here? Right? Am I okay so far? Could it be that rightward-leaning politics, or leftward-leaning politics, but I'm just talking to rightward-leaning politics, politics people because you know who you are. Could it be that either might take our focus off of Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, I like what Nate just said, because Nate can get away with stuff that I can't get away with. So I get away with it by quoting Nate, which is why he teaches on Wednesday and then I teach on Sundays. He said this a few weeks ago. He said, too many Christians act like Donald Trump is their savior and not Jesus Christ. And honestly, I agree. Now. I don't get politically engaged, but here's the deal. I am a Christian, first and foremost. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of my faith, way more so than I'm a proponent of some ideology. Yeah. Right? We're described as pilgrims in this world, according to Scripture. What's that mean? It means we're passing through. This is like a camping trip on the journey of life. In the big picture, right? Our citizenship is in heaven, we're told, according to the scriptures. Now, we are responsible stewards 
Okay, I don't want to, we're responsible stewards and, uh, and personally, while I've, now that I've already said way too much, personally, I believe that the thing I care most about politically is the life of an unborn child. Most vulnerable human being on our planet is an unborn child, right? So I'll stand for that as it relates to politics. But again, that's as a secondary piece of my focus on Jesus, right? So anything that takes our focus off Jesus can, if we're not careful, be that which deceives us with persuasive words. Anything that takes our focus off of Jesus. Anything that's contrary to a simple reading of the scriptures. Anything that causes us to not trust in God. Paul says, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. What Paul wants for them, what we should want for ourselves and for one another, is that our faith will be steadfast. Paul can't be there to hold, his, hold their hands. He's not even met them. But he wants to know of their steadfastness. What's he pointing about? What's he pointing to? He's pointing to the idea that we need to stay on that path. And if we're not careful, we will drift from that path. Again, we don't just wake up one day and start robbing banks and snorting cocaine, right? We drift from the path. And the way we drift is by not being steadfast. He says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. So we've received Jesus as Lord, as Christians. We've received Jesus. Fair enough, right? But too often we stop there and we fail to recognize that we must walk in him. He says, as you have received him, so walk in him. We walk the daily life and stay on the right path and all of that. And that's part of the steadfastness of our faith. So what does that look like? Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught. Rooted. I like that word rooted. Consider that word rooted. Rooted and built up in him and established. That's kind of a rooted type of word. Established in the faith as you've been taught. Our roots must be deep. Our roots must be deep. You ever try to uh, weed a garden? Would you rather, okay, if you're weeding a garden, would you rather try to pull up a dandelion or a clover? Why? Dandelion is going to break off, won't it? Why? The roots won't let go. Roots won't let go. The roots are deep, the roots are strong. And what happens when you break off that dandelion stem? The root is strong. It's going to grow right back, right? What happens when a deeply rooted Christian stumbles, goes through a hard time, gets his stem plucked off, grows back? That's a deeply rooted Christian. Turn back to the left, familiar story, Matthew chapter 13. 
a familiar story that Jesus is talking about the parable of the soils. He's talking about a sower goes out to sow the word of God as a metaphor, as a parable. And uh, the soil falls on four different kinds of, or the seed falls on four different kinds of soil. There's a hard soil that won't receive the word. There's a good soil that produces fruit and, and is awesome. And there are, the, there are these two soils in between, which are really pretty interesting. One is uh, uh, crowded with thorns and thistles and all kinds of stuff. And here's another kind. Look at verse 20. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Immediately he stumbles. Now, I believe Jesus intentionally didn't clarify here, does this person lose his salvation or anything like that? That's a, I'm, I'm going to say that's a doctrinal uh, distraction. The point is, we don't want to be that guy, right? We don't want to be the person that springs up briefly, and then, is, and then when persecution or tribulation comes because of the word, we stumble, we fall away, right? It's because the rocky soil has no depth for good roots. Look back at what we read in Colossians. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. If our faith is going to be steadfast, if we're going to go the distance... If we're going to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, having gone the distance, we've got to be rooted. If we're going to be steadfast, we've got to be rooted. We can't be planted on rocky soil. We can't be like a rocky soil Christian. And honestly, much of what goes on in the body of Christ, again, I'm being transparent, much goes on what, what goes on in the body of Christ is meant to appeal to the rocky soil Christian, right? See, because if I can get you to spring up real quick, right, either by an emotional experience or by something that's relatively superficial or maybe it's fun or maybe, you know, we got a vibe going here or something, if I can kind of generate the activity, maybe even sort of brand us or something, right, then uh, the numbers go up and, everything, and everybody's happy, right? But are we rooted? Not really. How does that play out? Well, we see how it plays out. We see how it plays out. Too much of our, rocky, too much of our modern day Christianity appeals to rocky soil Christianity. The end result is a culture of biblically illiterate shallow Christians who are unprepared to face the issues of life when persecution or tribulation arises. And I don't say that condemningly. I say that, honestly, I say that as a pastor. I say that to us. We need to, we need to redefine that culture of Christianity. Too often, 
We have a culture of biblically illiterate, shallow Christians who are unprepared to face the issues of life when tribulation or persecution arises. Does tribulation and persecution arise? Yeah. Does it even arise to Christians? Yeah. Honestly, I see this. I see this. I see this as a pastor. I see this as a physician, right? Does tribulation come to people I see as a doctor? Yeah. Tribulation comes. Challenge comes. Difficulty comes. And I'll tell you, I've seen over the years. It's fascinating to me. There's some people who can look that challenge straight in the eye with such resilience that it's it's amazing. And other people are like freaked out every time the wind blows. Right? What do we want to be? We want to be resilient. Steadfast. Rooted. Not deceived. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught. And I like this, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Abounding in it with thanksgiving. How much thanksgiving? An abounding amount of thanksgiving. Right? So, you walk through life, you go to Walmart, right? You run into somebody, they say, hey, how's your, how's your life going? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. It just, it's just, uh, it's always something. COVID's got me down, right? Life's got me down. Heartache's got me down. Whatever's got me down. Is that person thankful? I mean, there's, honestly, there's two sides of the world we can look at or we can focus on, right? We all have stuff to be thankful about. We all have challenge. God is still God, right? If you, got, if you can't think of anything else to be thankful about, God is still God. Amen. Jesus died for you personally. If you're the only person ever, if you were the only person to ever walk planet earth, he would have come. There would have been two of you and he would have died for you. Is that enough to be thankful for? In light of that, does it really matter how everything else rolls out? No. No. Abounding with thanksgiving. Let me tell you, thankfulness is like the fuel of our faith that, again, takes our focus off ourselves. It's hard for me to be thankful and focus on my own problems at the same time. I can't whine and be thankful at the same time. It doesn't work. So, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Now he goes back to sort of deception again. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So again, 
because we're reading the scripture, we got to go through these, right? Now we get some specifics a little bit about the deception that we can uh, be cheated from our steadfastness of our faith. One is philosophy, right? Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. What's philosophy? When I say the word philosophy, what's it make you automatically like think of? Like, oh, oh, right? If I start, if I say, and I got to hold my head just right, and I got to have the right, stroke my beard a little bit, and I say, let me tell you about my philosophy. What does it make you feel? Like I think I'm what? Smart. And I'm speaking to you condescendingly. Right? Yeah. Haven't lost anybody, right? I want to tell you about my philosophy. Well, you see, <laughs> and then I do this little, <laughs> I add a little condescending chuckle, right? Let me tell you about my philosophy as it relates to <laughs> yours. How do you feel? You feel like, oh, he knows something I don't know. You feel like, well, unless yeah, <laughs> Brian does it. Uh, you feel like, uh, work with me. You feel like I know something you don't know. You feel like maybe I'm in fear in some way, and maybe like the emperor really doesn't have any clothes on, or maybe the emperor does have clothes on, right? You know the emperor's new clothes story. You know, maybe it just, it just that philosophy thing, the philosophy of the world intimidates me so much that I don't want to admit that I disagree with it. Is that reasonable? You bet it is. Nobody likes to be looked down upon. Nobody likes to feel like they're stupid. Nobody likes to feel like they're uh, not... Uh, privy to some great insight. Paul, I'm going to go out on a limb just from a purely secular standpoint, from a purely biological standpoint. Was Paul a pretty smart guy? Yeah, Paul was pretty smart. I'm going to say Paul was, well, I won't say smarter than anybody in the room. Smarter than me. Paul was way smarter than me. So, he can say, beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. Just can I tell you this? Please, please, please. When the world tries to give you that condescending, and it comes in waves. When the world gives you that condescending philosophy thing, you don't have to buy it. Paul says, Paul, the smart guy, says, beware, lest anybody cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men. Now, the tradition of men, that's kind of an interesting word. Tradition of men. You know, does anybody like to feel left out? Right? Does anybody like to feel like they're abnormal? Right? We all want to be kind of normal in a sort of a way. We want to be individual. We can't, we can't really make up our minds, truly. Because we want to be individual, but we all kind of want to be normal. And so those two things uh, kind of uh, have some dynamic there that we're all trying to sort out in some ways at times. I believe the tradition of men can tempt us too much 
to want to be normal. Does that make sense? The tradition of men tempts us to want to be normal. And I believe it can tempt us off of the path. Can I tell you this? As I look around, normal doesn't work. Normal, lots of things don't work. You can almost pick your category of life. Normal doesn't work. So beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the word, world, and not according to Christ. So again, if it's contrary to simple reading of Scripture, beware. Beware. For in him, verse 9, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We've said over and over in this book so far that Jesus is God. Jesus Jesus' deity is unshakable. And if we depart from that in our, in our doctrine, we're way, way, way off. And so uh, this is probably the strongest verse in the Bible, speaking of the deity of Jesus. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All of it. So the life and te teaching of Jesus is a good place to, to follow. That's solid ground. That's safe ground. As long as, again, we're focused on him, we're protected from deception. And you, verse 10, are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. So we, as we focus on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, according to the steadfastness of our, of our faith, we're complete in him, he says. And he, by the way, is the head of all principality and power. Principality and power is kind of a phrase that's often used for, you know, the, the angelic world, the demonic world, right? Ephesians chapter 6 talks about principalities and powers in terms of spiritual warfare. Jesus is the head over all of that. So not only is he head over me, not only is he the head of the body of Christ, right? Not only is he, a, is he the head of all humanity, he's the head of all principality and power, everything that we can't see, right? Now, do you want to follow him? Yeah. Yeah. So, when we receive Jesus, we begin our walk. And that walk is a daily thing. I was talking to somebody earlier. You know, it's a daily thing. I get that. I get that. Is it always easy? No. Does it always feel easy? No. Does it always feel fun? No. But it's daily. And each day, each day, having stepped in the right direction, is a step in the right direction. It's a step closer to, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And that's the walk of the Christian life. And I love, the Bible gives us very specific instruction, how to walk in a way that's steadfast. And, he, and the Bible also gives us very specific warnings to not stray from that. How to not stray from that how to avoid being deceived, how to avoid being cheated. And let me just encourage us, as, as Christians, those things that can stray us from the path 
are the things that might seem like they're good and noble things. And I'm not saying they're bad, right? There's nothing wrong with politics, right? Everybody okay with me on that? You, nobody's, okay. Nothing wrong with politics. Nothing wrong with good doctrine, right? There's nothing wrong with healthy relationships. There's nothing wrong with a healthy church. But we just have to make sure those are in their proper place in the context of Jesus Christ. That's what keeps us on the, wrong, on the right path and off the wrong path. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Thank you so much, Lord, for these uh, just very specific warnings you give us from your word. These very specific encouragements, Lord, that we could be encouraged. That we could be knit together. That we could enjoy the riches of life with you. Lord, we want to be there. We want to stay there. We want to walk there. Lord, help us to help us just to continue to follow you according to your word. And just please have your way with us and guide us and lead us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.